Welcome to the Irish Times Book Club podcast for June 2017. I'm Martin Doyle. If this is your first time listening, you might be wondering how this works. Each month we run a series of articles on irishtimes.com on a chosen author. And at the end of each month we hold a public interview with that author at the Irish Writers' Centre on Parnell Square here in Dublin. It's free to attend. This month our chosen author is Jennifer Johnston. Jennifer's first novel, The Captains and the Kings, was published in 1972 when she was 42. Her latest work, Naming the Stars, a haunting tale of love, loss and memory, was published by Tinder Press last year. Literary correspondent Eileen Battersby interviewed Jennifer at the Irish Writers' Centre. Well, good evening and welcome. Um, this is a very special um, Irish Times Book Club podcast. Uh, we have one of Ireland's great writers. We have one of the world's great writers. And we have... We a, have Jennifer Johnson. We here. also have one of the world's great critics. <laughs> Wherever you go, people say, ah, yes, you have Eileen Battersby. And we do. And we're very proud of her. Thank you. It would be, it would be nice to be known for being kind of a friendly person. <laughs> <laughs> the decent person, the person that can fix your car. If and she can look after your horse. And your horse. <laughs> but enough, enough of the frivolity. So with Jennifer Johnson, I mean, on a, on a serious note, we, we seriously do have one of the world's great writers here. I think if, uh, if fiction, if literature is about helping us to understand the world, to understand the business of living, to understand about love and sorrow and grief, disappointment, joy, and memory. Jennifer Johnson has achieved this in a remarkable body of work. Um, We have a number of things to ask you, but I think a good opener is this. We know you are a great writer. What's it like being an Irish writer? Well, now... I presume it's much like being an anybody else writer, like an English writer or an Australian writer. I wouldn't mind being an Australian writer. I think they're very good and they have wonderful energy and they're very witty. Um, It's just like being an Irish person, which is a bit different to being anybody else, really, because we're so mad and we're so involved with our own past and uh, that really annoys me and so I live in a fairly permanent state of annoyance Um, but still saying hooray I'm Irish and um, people there was a period of time of about 10 years when the minute you got on a platform somebody would say uh, now you know you're Irish What makes you different to anybody else? Well, and this was infuriating. This happened in France, it happened in Germany, it happened in Italy, it happened wherever you went. People always wanted to know what it felt like to be Irish. Well, it feels just like being anybody else, Um, except that there's an awful... We have um, an amazing uh, love of our own falseness. And I don't like that. Um, I, I'm very glad I lived out of Ireland for a while, about 20 years, something like that. And um, it just meant that when I came back, I knew what I had been thinking about in my head, which I'd never really worked out before. Um, do you want me to say anything else? It's interesting. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's interesting. 
I suppose something that, that is very pivotal too about the notion of being Irish mm. and does an Irish writer shaped by Irish social history by the past by the repressions by the um, freedoms things like that but mm. one thing I suppose the pivotal thing must be that um, I remember you saying that um, your father I mean you're the, mm. the daughter of a playwright and the daughter of an daughter actor of a great man yeah and your father um a couple of years before he died, you just by chance turned on a TV show and he was being interviewed. And your father, the playwright, the great playwright, said of his daughter, you, that he envied you your ability with language. It was something he didn't have. And you, who had come across that quite by chance, mm. were so moved by it that, that you began to cry. Mm. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. But that's the writer's tool. Mm. I mean, the, the language. So, I mean, as an Irish writer who's lived abroad, um, you've also crossed the various social, cultural barriers in Ireland as well, these frontiers. But could you speak to us about, about language? Well, language has always been a thing that I have been obsessed with, right from a very, very early age, like about four. Um, and I, I, I never could understand why. I mean, why did my view on one word, uh, why was it so different to somebody else's view on one word? And why did I... I used to write plays, which we did at school, and um, the, the, the little ones did, not the big, sophisticated people, small people this size. And they used, they used to have fights about these parts, which was infuriating. And um, uh, right from that moment on, I realised that words are terribly dangerous weapons. And um, I might not want to use them as weapons, but I always wanted to... um, Well, rather like building houses, I wanted to build different houses with the same letters. And I've always enjoyed this, and I, I... I, at the moment, I'm having a big, unable-to-write bit in my life, which I don't enjoy. And I lie in bed at night and saying words to myself and saying, I could start the next book with this sentence, and I would then say a mad sentence to myself, and then I would laugh, and then I'd go to sleep. <laughs> but I, I have found words always... Uh, the, the, the reason why I continue to write is that I'm still looking for the great words. I may have to invent them myself, of course. That would um, As a child, um, one of your early memories was watching um, your mother struggling with lear- learning her lines. Mm-hmm. So again, we have language pivotal mm-hmm. words. I mean, watching an actor put emphasis on particular words yeah. and the fact that you have this strong theatrical streak. Well, I have yeah. because, because of my mother. Mm because I was always brought in... I, I, I'm a nanny brought-up child, and I can't say how splendid it is, um, because I had a splendid nanny from the age of nothing to the age of about 12, when my brother Michael went to school. We had the same nanny, and her name was Nono. You can guess why. And um, she was absolutely wonderful. And like you, she rode horses. And she was wonderful. And she used, she also had a motor car of her own. I think, I don't believe my parents paid her that much money, but however. 
um, she used to bring me into the abbey when my mother was rehearsing there um, to say goodnight. And, and there you were in the witch's cave, you know. Everything was magic around you. It was dark. There were voices coming from here, there and everywhere, and you never knew where. It was a bit alarming because of that. And then there was your mother, um, not being herself. My mother was, was, was a wonderful woman. Um, she was a bit dramatic in her own private life as well as on the stage. And, uh, but you recognised that when it started happening, you know, and you sort of said, hmm, time to go to bed. And I was brought in to say goodnight to her. And there I met all those wonderful people like F.J. McCormick and Maureen... Um, hmm? Yeah. Thank you. And, um, you know, it, it, was, it was wonderful. And so I sort of grew up thinking that normalness was acting. And I did a bit of it myself. I, you, it just to annoy people, like asking about lights. <laughs> That's only pulling my own leg, you know, you don't have to pay too much attention to that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because y- your characters don't tend to be happy, but they're certainly um, they're interested, they're curious, yeah. they want to find answers to things, they're restless, um, they observe, they watch, and many of them are writers. Mm-hmm. So it's just this notion of um, story as a way of kind of finding an answer. Well, yes. Yeah. And, and, and why else do you write? Because there are, we're living in an ocean of, 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 of questions that have never been asked, that people don't dare ask. And if they do, they unask them again. And they don't necessarily got, get um, answers that they like. So some people go on asking the same questions over and over again because they hope that somebody's going to say what they want them to say. And, of course, nobody ever is. And I think a wonderful new... Well, I suppose it isn't new. um, People who write books about writers, about writing. People like um, that splendid man. Now, you see, this is where old age gets you. I have forgotten the names of everybody I was going to talk about, if I was asked. Um, That wonderful man from South America who lives in France, you know who he is, because I think I wrote to you once. Alberto Alberto Manguel. People like Alberto Manguel. And I don't know if any of you have read anything, but he is the most brilliant person. He's the most brilliant reader. And I think he must have read almost everything that's ever been written in all languages. And he writes about how to read. Well, you know, you think, I know how to read. You pick a book up and you just look at it. Well, of course, you don't. That's not what you do. What you do is so much more complicated than picking a book up and and, and just looking at it. And he tells you why. And he reads, he has read all the great books of the world. I mean, going back to the Greeks and people, you know, my um, mind goes blank suddenly when t- people talk about the Greeks and the Latins that the, and, and the Romans. That's because I had a terrible teacher of Latin when I was at school and I hated her. And all, everything that happens, you wonder about. And my, my family is, was a family that had 
extraordinary, um, strange, un unsensible um, way of living, really. They all got divorced from each other and they then went on seeing each other and they, you know, all this sort of thing. It's kind of a Noel Coward kind of world, isn't it? Well, way, it, is yeah, brief, it is, but it's not as funny as Noel Coward, believe you me. <laughs> but there is a lot of humour in, in the work. I suppose it's because um, you, you're, you're very comfortable in the first person. So although you've written yeah, first and I, third, that first, first person voice, very laconic, very wry. Um, I suppose, in a way, um, th- this is a body of fiction that is, in a way, partly not only looking at individuals, but it's it's also chronicling the end of a way of life. Uh-huh. So you brought the big house from the, the big I wish house. Would stop talking. Well, no, it's no, and it's certainly not the whole story. And I, mm. I'm very quick to say that it's mm. not the whole story of your mm. work by, by a long shot. But when you have the, this the big house story, and people kind of think, well, yes, the class thing, but there's also class tensions, mm-hmm. and, and I mean friendships, yeah. yeah, friendships. Mm. Um, the way the the, the big house. Uh, Ends up quite logically in the suburbs of Docky and Kalini in ways, you know. But <laughs> indeed, yeah, yeah. Indeed. But I mean, there's there's also the idea of the um, the notion of a story as a way of explaining. And I, th- I think that's very important. And the fact that you're, um, it's very sophisticated fiction, but it's also um, delivered. In, you make it look very easy. And I think that's something people probably want to ask you about, is how easy you make it look. And I think, is it, is it because of the conversational tone? And is that because your ear was developed at such an early age? I think it was because my ear was developed. I don't know whether it was such an early age or not. But I used to, I used to listen. And I did work out very, very quickly that if I listened very quietly, they forgot to send me to bed. <laughs> so that was sort of quite a good piece of information to learn when you were five, you know, um, that you, if you shush, the minute you start moving, your mother says, my God, haven't you gone to bed yet? And off you had to go. But if you managed to keep quiet, that was very good. It was quite extraordinary in the 1990s when um, Pat Barker emerged with Regeneration, mm. the first of the Ghost Road trilogy, mm. and the, the Eye in the Door, mm. and the Ghost Road, which won mm. her the Booker mm. Prize, and, people, and the fact that she was using source material, it gave a weight to her narratives mm. rather than uh, Sebastian Fox, although mm-hmm. Birdsong did very well. And people were saying that these British writers had really discovered the First World War. And I, so many times I heard myself saying that Jennifer Johnson's already written about this, and you were writing not from source material, but from people you actually knew. I mean, mm. you knew a man who had fought in, in the First World War. Yeah. Like, there was people still around when you were very young. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, not even mm. very young. Mm. And I was in my 20s, mm. there were still ancient men. But it's, it's, it's a pivotal moment in, mm. in, in, well, in world history, and, and it's only as I'm quite um, struck now by the fact that it seems that suddenly people have discovered the First World War in the same way that 1916. Mm. And when we came here from America, we thought the 1916 story was amazing. Mm. But that's because I was obsessed with the American Civil War. Mm. And I was surprised that so many of my, of my contemporaries who had grown up in Ireland had no interest in 1916. But it was amazing what happened last year. Mm. So I was just wondering, would you, would you like to speak about that? Because it's, it, it offers such drama for story, because mm. it is the human story. That's how you've used the story of the First World War, how you've responded to it. Well, uh, mm. I'd hate to. Mm. Uh, I, 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 I really don't know. I just knew that one day uh, I thought 
one thing and the next day my 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 thinking about the first world war um had sort of completely changed and a lot of that was somebody's diary that i read mm. and also the fact that the north was getting pretty nasty and it was just a sort of uh it, it had just been left by the, the by by what happened in 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 1916 um it it got left after the second battle of the somme and 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 i i did suddenly start reading a lot of books and diaries that were telling me things because you can't ever believe what the historians tell you you can believe what the novelists tell you and um so i read i read a lot of novels and wonderful um oh uh sassoon and good old siegfried yeah, yeah. good old siegfried yeah Robert Graves and yeah yeah exactly and 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 there were sort of Batty old men. I mean, my 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 brother-in-law. They appeared yeah. to be batty. Yeah. Uh, Good reason. <laughs> yeah. Well, indeed. Yeah. My brother-in-law. Um, he his. Uh, well, he he used to go shooting out of the sitting room window and, the, and out of his bedroom window when he came to stay, yeah. um, because he was said he was shooting burglars, but he probably wasn't shooting burglars. He was shooting. Yeah birds or something from the first world war you know and he had he had stories to tell everybody all these old men had much better and more interesting stories than the younger men because the younger men had come out of another war and they had never i i think people really did believe that the first world war was going to end or was it's actually begun them yeah, yeah. rather than end them yeah. we're at the beginning of a terrible future i think yeah. but there you are Bruce, i remember actually um, interviewing uh, tobias wolf oh, yeah. an american writer who served in vietnam and he had three children and i was like oh you've been to vietnam wow what was that like and he kind of looked and he started laughing so i kind of like oh boy you know, but he said that he had two sons, and the sons absolutely no interest. And he didn't speak about his experience until his 14-year-old daughter was doing a school project. And that was the first time he was asked about his experiences in Vietnam. <coughs> so I thought, wow, that was quite interesting. And then again, and this sounds awful, kind of, you know, just mentioning people, but I mean, I, I mentioned, um, I meant uh, Joseph Heller, the mm. author of Catch-22, mm. mm. and he'd been a bombardier, mm. and he'd flown missions. And he was kind of crazy. But he said the same thing, mm. that neither of his children had any interest in his experiences. And then he says, it's really weird. And then what you do, you sit down, you write a book, and everybody wants to know. But they, that is quite amazing. The men mm. have these stories mm. that nobody wants to know. And mm. I suppose when you look at the war generation, people forget that Tolkien fought at the Somme. Mm. And mm. it's obviously did, because where else did the battle scenes come mm. from? Indeed. But, but Indeed. Um, often, um, you were speaking about the... the um, Experiences of knowing men from the first uh, first war. There's that um, uh, graveyard churchyard up in up in Roscommon, uh, Stafford King Harmon, mm. and it, it's quite uh, you know it's, you can't go there without mm. thinking of your work. Mm. And there's there's a plot at three graves and the three brothers, and that's one plot. And then just literally three four feet away, 
It's a single grave, and that is the son of one of the three brothers. And the son died in the Second World War, where his father, that he never knew, had died in the First World War. Most extraordinary, you've got four Stafford King Harmons in the space of a few feet. Mm. And that kind of tells the story. Mm. And these were Irishmen. Oh, yeah. You know, so there are lots of them around the place. Mm. Yeah. yeah. But w- were you surprised with the response? I mean, your, your first book was published when you were 42, but you had been writing. I'd been writing since I was 35, when I was encouraged to write by a big, fat American film star yeah. who said, stop talking about being a writer and go and be one. Mm-hmm. And I meekly went home and did. And I was terribly lucky because my, my first book won a prize. And that was The Captains and the Kings. It shouldn't have won a prize. I, 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 you know, it really shouldn't have won a prize. But it did. And that just changed my entire life. Because it meant that it wasn't just me and a bit of paper. It was me and the world. You know, you, you'd think these crazy things, you know. And uh, I, I really haven't ever looked back. It was by no means my best book. And indeed, nor was How Many Miles to Babylon. And, and, and one of the things that I liked most about Babylon was that Frank McGuinness came up to me once and he said, you know, I was at the Protestant graveyard in Coleraine oh, yeah. and I saw all these names yeah. and I thought, my God, mm. these men were killed in that war. And uh, he went home and he thought about it and out of that thinking mm-hmm. came that wonderful play, absolutely wonderful play, observed the Sons of Ulster. And with, with how many miles to Babylon? I mean, it's and, um, and he said, hmm. when I hmm. got home, I saw one of your books on my bookshelf, and he he said I, I read it again, and that was some um, how many miles to Babylon. He said that book and that graveyard um, gave me the sort of energy to write the book, the play. God, it was a wonderful play. It's interesting too, because that, that moment, um, duty, the, the duty, you know, the, the kind of pivotal thing yeah. about going, about appearing to desert, yeah. the duty, and that how um, the British military could take, um, suddenly kind of put one of one of its own soldiers mm. to, to to death over kind of what seems petty rules oh, and regulations. Ridiculous. I yeah, and you had that as early in that book, mm. and that was one of the central things in the second volume of the Ghost Road mm. trilogy when mm. Pat Barker actually. Mm. Um, opened the files in Whitehall and had these terrible things. So she touched on it in the first one in, in Regeneration with the men being sent to Craig Lockhart and mm. to be um, patched together, having been gassed and, and sent back, and sent back as fodder. Yeah. And then in um, The Door in the Dark, which was probably the, be- the best of the three books. Mm. I mean, ironically, the first two were probably stronger than mm. one that actually mm. won the prize. But she really opened the door to how mm. these men retreated. And yeah. we're about to see now with this new book, Paul Ham's book on Passchendaele, mm. in which he's going to squarely put the blame on Lord George and, and, and Haig for what happened mm. in Passchendaele. Mm. That, I mean, these men, that, that they, did we actually do that to our own men? Yes, mm. you did. Mm. You know, but, but you had touched on it so early because mm. it's something about kind of the, the sheer pettiness of it and the cruelty, yeah. you know, balanced against friendship. So you look to the human. Yeah. In, 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 well, it was all I knew about Exactly, it. yeah. Mm. But, I mean, is there a sense of, was there a sense of, um, like, like, did you have, 
a lamentation or did you you feel these men deserved kind of a memorial or it, was it just the, the, the idea of a lost generation was that behind it was yeah more that mm. um yeah i still have got a little you know tickling inside my head that there is there is more and 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 it is a thing that um women can do and uh women are doing well maybe they're not at this moment but they have done it i mean pat barker was splendid and the other the woman who wrote the uh the book about shirley williams's mother oh, really? what was that called that was um, a very good book. yeah yeah yeah. That, is that a no, book about Fear of Britain's book? That's Testament of Youth. Testament of Youth. Yeah. Testament Fear of, of Youth. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Wonderful book. But I think um, the, this notion of war, mm. that I mean, the actual humanity of it, and I suppose when, you, when it comes down to it, I, I suppose well, it's very important to think of these men in Passchendaele dying in the mud. They, they fell. I mean, the biggest problem in Passchendaele was if you slipped in the mud, that if you it. fell off a stretcher, if you were a wounded man being yeah. carried on a stretcher. Yeah. And um, the Irish poet Francis Ledwidge, who died um, at Passchendaele the first day, 31st of July um, 1917, wasn't in on, uh, an active fire at that well, day. Well, he was mending a road. He was putting down duckboards. Yeah. Mm. yeah. He was almost like working as a labourer as opposed yeah. to a soldier. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just the chance, the chance moment. Yeah. But he, as as a, as a big story, there is this kind of, there seems to be a distinction or a difference between the literature of the First World War that was actually written at the time, and the subsequent literatures inspired. Which I mean, as I say, that your mm. work is very central there, mm. and that you were there before the celebration the of of the 1990s 1990s mm. works. But it, it seems to be different from that of the Second World War. Would you have um, anything to offer on that? Why, is, why did the two wars create a different kind of literature? Because we turned into different people after the, after the First World War was over. I mean, the world was radically changed mm. and has tried to pretend that it wasn't. Mm. I mean, it, it is the lies that really are the thing that mm. change us. And the fact that we believe the lies and... I don't, well, this thing of celebration or whatever you like to call it, of 1916, which from our point of view is very important, and, 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 and the last war, um, I've forgotten what I was going to say now. You're just talking about the, the lies people say. Well, yeah. Things, yeah. I mean... The mythologies the, that are created. The mythologies are believed as truths. Yeah. And it's taking an awful lot of beating that out of us to get rid of that. But it is, it is moving. And is that awareness of the lies, is that why um, central to so many of your books is this search for answers, search Absolute for the truth? for truth. Yeah. And in the end of that old book there, you know, um, the two old ladies stand in the garden and, and say, what will we drink to? And she says truth. Yeah. And that's the end of the book. Yeah. And it doesn't do much good. And um, when somebody has written so many books, um, people tend to kind of group them. And also some of the books are kind of seen shoulder to shoulder with the works of William Trevor. But a, a, different, a different vision, the same, but, but different. Mm. Um, did you look to Elizabeth Bowen at any stage? As a no, I've never been able to read her. Interesting. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry about no, no. that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I read a little bit and I say, no, I can't get on with that. 
How about Molly Keane? Yeah, she's sort of funny. But I, I don't, I'm, I'm not mad about her. Yeah, it's just the fact that you kind of, you kind of inhabit this, this different, it's, it's a kind of rather, um, it's a highly individual thing. I mean, you, you speak, well, I've mentioned already the laconic narrator, and you, in ways you have that um, same thing that John Banville has. Mm. But with John Banville, it comes in a more self-conscious art, mm. whereas I say you make it look easy. Oh. And well, I think that's an interesting, an interesting thing. And... I, I suppose a very good book to take out of this large body of work, and I'm quite sure that every, most of us here have read all of your books, but uh, The Christ- Christmas Tree, mm. a most extraordinary book about a woman facing her death. Mm. And I often kind of think when people mention you, have you read the I always mention this book, mm-hmm. because, it, like, and it's proof of the fact that it, there's more than the big house, although I think you have brilliantly chronicled that. Mm. There's more than kind of the lamentation and the, the, this kind of, you know, rage, this controlled rage and anger about mm. the First World War, the injustices, mm. the lies. But in something like Christmas Tree, there's a woman, Constance, actually facing her end, and it's incredibly mm. poignant. However sharp she is, we feel for this woman. Could you speak about how you followed that woman on that journey, her last journey? Well, she was a cousin of mine. And she was about eight or nine years older than me. Uh, my mother's family range. For my my uh, grandfather and grandmother uh, had five children, and there was seventeen years between them. And my mother was the youngest, mm-hmm. <coughs> and uh, so she was terribly spoiled, and had everything thrown at her. Mm-hmm. Um, but my cousin Pam uh, had a strange life. Uh, she went to Mount Anvil, which she hated. I'm not a bit surprised. I don't quite know why her parents didn't take her away. Um, and uh, she then went and worked in England as a physiotherapist. And she was always having strange affairs with strange men. And she then had an affair with a very nice Pole, who had been in Auschwitz and he was a tiny man a terribly nice man and she treated him like a dog and then the wedding the, the, the marriage fell apart and she couldn't tell her father because he would have had a nervous breakdown her father never went to church he always used to say to me you only have to be at the mass Jennifer dear for five minutes <laughs> And he would get in his car and drive from one end of Donnybrook to the other and go into church and be there for five minutes and then he would come home again and that was that. But he still would have been terribly cross if he'd known that his daughter had got divorced. I've never been able to work him out. He was a nice man, but he was eccentric. And um, so... She came back to Ireland, pregnant, unmarried, pregnant, and uh, she she got married, and then the whole thing fell apart. And she, it was all very complicated. And as this was all happening, it was also discovered that she had cancer. And uh, her brother, was a, probably people here know them, but 
her brother was a, a, a bit of an old monster and he was an absolutely passionate Catholic and should have been Pope. You know, he's one of those ones. He was always lecturing you. And then he would laugh and say, but why am I talking to you about this? Yeah. And you yeah. would say, I don't know. <laughs> and um, anyway, she uh, died leaving her child, who was about six or seven, um, at, to the tender charms of his uncle. And she, she was aware. She then went into the Church of Ireland literally a couple of months before she died. Yeah. And she, you know, was sort of reveling in that. There was a very nice rector in Monkstown. And um, she just went to bed and she died. Yeah. And he was sort of um, thrown into the fire. Poor child, very nice little boy. And when she died, um, his father had been living in England and had got himself another lady very sensibly. And, uh, well, it's all very sad. We we kept ringing him up. His name is Sam. We kept ringing him up and saying, no, don't come over yet, or uh, try next week, you know, and this sort of thing. Yeah. And finally the moment came when um, somebody said to him, she is now dying, and he got on the first boat and he came over. Yeah. And he went into her room in the hospital, and he, he knelt down beside her and he said, I'm here, it's okay, the, baby's, the little boy's going to be okay, he's going to be okay. And she said, thank God, and she died. And these sort of strange things sort of happen. And they were always treated like terribly normal things in a strange way. I mean, that was the sort of one strange thing about my family is that all the awful things that happened to them, they sort of treated them as if they were okay. I suppose because you've always said that you're not romantic. You're not a romantic. You're a realist. That that book is so distressing that at the end of it, you do cry. I mean, you do cry for the woman because it's very mm. powerful. Um, she was a very nice woman. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember Pam? Yeah. yeah. She was a very nice yeah. woman. For the character in the book, I mean, she's she's fairly abrasive, and you kind of think early on, boy, I don't be on the wrong, wrong side of her. But by the end of the book, you're really kind of you're really with her. Well, you you print not before you before the end of the book, you're already with her. Mm. But at the end of the book, incredibly moving, very powerful. Nothing sentimental. No, no easy, no you easy nostalgia. Yeah, that, that's one of thing. the things that yeah. I've always tried not mm. to do mm. is to be sentimental, mm. because sentimentality in books drives me absolutely out of my mind. Are you a tough editor on yourself when you're writing? Yeah. I mean, you're really paring it down in mm. the actual writing process. Mm. Yeah, and always kind of testing kind of the, the truth of it. Yeah, well, I think so. That's what I think I'm trying to do, mm. but whether I am or not. I, you, ne- you never know yourself. But just the human relations, and I suppose the building of the characters mm. is, is, is something that you have from having watched and listened over the yeah, years. Yeah, and yeah. I go sort of backwards and forwards at people. So now I might be writing about breakfast today, mm. but tomorrow I'm going to be writing about breakfast seven years ago. Mm. And... I, I don't know, I, I can't control what is going to be coming out 
of my fingers when I sit down. And that's, I don't know why I can't write at the moment, but I will have to. And the time shifts, um, time mm. shifts um, your way of filtering or uh, presenting the way memory works, mm. because it, we do think mm. in these time mm. shifts, mm. it could be 15 years or mm. 30 years or mm. last week. And mm. that's the way. So th- it's a sense of uh, how life is. Oh, yeah. And the grandparent is very useful when it comes to this, because you can have all sorts of things coming out from yeah. the grandparent that um, yeah. nobody would have known about. So for you, tr- uh, history is more of a treasure trove than, than an oppressor. Yeah. It's very, very yeah. useful. It's almost like the, 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 the big um, box of fancy dress. Yeah, yeah. indeed. Yeah. 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 These episodes. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. yet, be, being able to use these things without making it uh, look like the story is dependent on the devices. Like, how, how do you do that? How do you make I don't know how yeah. I do anything except because it just comes out. And I may have to cross it all out. Mm-hmm. But I may not. And that is the only... I mean, I really don't know how I write. I know why I write. But I don't know how I write at all. How important is physical description to you as well, a writer? Well, I think it's quite important. But you mustn't let it get... You mustn't let it overflow. And I suppose there are would-be people, because there are people who almost make it overflow, like my almost favourite writer in the world, who is E.M. Um, e. Foster. <laughs> and yeah. you, there are times you think, uh-uh, he's getting very near the edge, and then he saves himself, for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But do you um, concentrate on he- uh, hearing the character before you actually see the character? Is it the voice that you have to get in your head before you get the physical description? Or is it the other around? Well, yes, but I really. Thought it was the but voice, the, yeah. and I, I mean, mm. I had one, mm. one um, character who came and sat in my room until I actually put him in the book. He came every day and sat in the room on the sofa. And who was this person? It was the angel. <laughs> and, and, you know, angels can do that sort of thing. But as my eldest son said, Mother, angels do not exist. But they're useful. They nearly kicked them. They're useful in fiction. <laughs> the, 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 I've touched on it already about the, the, the um, characters don't seem to be particularly happy, but they're certainly engaged. I mean, like, is happiness um, is happiness tosh? I mean, is happiness a completely boring state, or is no, it happiness is wonderful? Yeah. But it's a prize. Mm. It is absolutely a prize, mm. and um, I. I don't know how it can be anything else. I mean, why the Americans go on and on about happiness? We're not happy anymore. (laughs) (laughs) That's over. It's it's over. It's over. It's over. It's a broken nation. (laughs) I don't think it's broken enough. Oh, it is. Well, we'll see. We'll see. Has Mueller been fired yet? Does anybody know? Is Mueller still there? Where there's hope where the FBI investigation continues. <laughs> Very tenuous. But if, if um, in the writing of story, then, like, because so many of them are quite contemporary, is this, is this, um, this is based on kind of your observation of Irish society now, this evolution of Irish society. How does that strike you as a writer? I mean, the, the crisis may not have been that interesting to write about, but the crisis continues. Oh, in the a, crisis a certainly way. continues, I mean, yeah. It's a breakdown of society. Yeah. 
Yeah. You speak and to it's going, no, no yeah. I can't because yeah. I need to be a politician and we shouldn't listen to politicians anyway because they speak absolute rubbish mm. most of the time. Um, I am grateful to whoever's up there that I'm not a politician because that would be absolutely gassy. Then I wouldn't be able to write books. So it's more of a, a cultural response rather than a political response. I think it is, yeah. Mm. Mm. And the, um, have, do you think often, I mean, um, Ireland, offers, Ireland offers a good kind of uh, palette to work from? Well, it does to me mm. because I'm Irish. Mm. I know mm. the different colours, what happens to this colour and that colour. Mm. I know those things. I, I know them sort of automatically like mm. we all do. But, um, do you have a preference for um, the rural versus the versus the urban or the suburban? Is is an interesting territory no, as well. I, or? I, I I love the country, but I love it sort of hypothetically. I don't know what hypothetically means. I just invented it. Um, but I I, I don't um, I, I I prefer to be in the uh, urban, and I prefer to be. I mean, I'd rather live in Dublin than in Mullingar. Excuse me, anybody from Mullingar. Um, yeah. But I suppose I, because Dublin is so small, it's so diverse. I mean, it's hard to, you know, maybe this is true of every city, but I suppose because this place is so small, when you look at, um, it's hard to balance Docky, say, against Fisborough or someplace. It's all... No, I wouldn't okay? even try to do mm. that. Yeah. No, 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 no. But like Docky's a kingdom into itself, really, isn't it? Well, I'm not sort of totally yeah. mad. I love the sea. sea yeah. it, it is, you know, architecturally, yeah. it's charming. Yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't want to live in Dorky. Mm. There are no shops. <laughs> <laughs> A big theme with you, uh, mothers and daughters, generations. Well, we have to be careful here. Do we? Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's, and it, even using um, three generations, you've, you've had the grandmother, the mother, and the daughter, mm. which is interesting because you have two women who are daughters, mm. two women who are mothers. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's an interesting mm-hmm. kind of mm-hmm. phenomenon. But would you, you talk about that, that what is the peculiar, the peculiar tensions? And I suppose when you're writing dialogue, which you obviously like writing, mm. that's the theatrical... But I would love here. more than anything mm. to be able to write a good play. I really would, and I don't think I'm ever going to do it. Uh, so I just sort of sit there thinking, oh, God, it would be wonderful <laughs> to be able to do this, and I don't start mm. doing it. Mm. You've got to start something before anything can happen. We could be here for several kind of more hours or several <laughs> more days. Um, I know like, the impulse is now you want to go off and read the books again. You know, but I feel like that anyhow. I like rereading these books. The more you, you arrive at it, the more you reread the books. I do, yeah. I, I mean, as the reader, the more mm. rereading your books mm. is a very, very rich and very constantly rewarding experience. And I think that's a special. If we thing could for write writing. that up outside every bookshop in Ireland, it'd be very. <laughs> we'll do our best. <laughs> thank you so much. As as a reader, I thank you so much for what you've done. Um, as the person sitting here, trying to ask the questions, I feel very, very privileged. Um, I'm very um, almost moved, I am quite moved by this. So all I can say on behalf of everyone here, and everyone wants to thank you, um, I'm the one sitting here, so I'll say thank you. Thank you so very much, Jennifer Jones.
July's book club choices are A Border Station and Married Quarters by Shane Connaughton, two memoirs of his time growing up in a Garda station in County Cavan, separated by about 20 years. I'll be recording an interview with Shane at the West Cork Literary Festival in Bantry on Thursday, July the 20th at 5pm in the local library. For more information on this and other Irish Times book club titles, visit irishtimes.com, the book section.